And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. When most commentators say that our text is one of the most difficult and controversial passages to interpret in all of Pauline um, literature, I know I'm in trouble when I have to preach on these verses. Now, if you haven't had the, the pleasure of uh, meeting Mr. Kent Atkins, Kent, just raise your hand real quick. He's, he's a newcomer to us, but Kent has a Ph.D. and taught New Testament at Bab- um, Texas Baptist Dallas Baptist uh, University, all right? So I'm sure he knows what I'm talking about uh, here. Let me ask you just real quick. Is this a difficult test? Text. Yes, it is. Yep, 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 yep. You'll find out. You'll find out. Now, uh, the difficulty with the text is not with the main idea. That's pretty clear. Uh, It's with the many details, Just about every phrase generates endless pages of discussion and debate among scholars. Uh, And and rather than wading into several weeks of messages on that level of detail, I'm going to give you a single broad overview of verses 12 through 19. I'm not going to be able to explain every detail, and I'm not even going to try in some cases. Um, But hopefully you'll, you'll get the big picture. Like I said, the main idea is not hard to see here. Part of the debate is whether these verses summarize what came before it, or whether they point to point ahead to to what follows, you know what, what's coming up, chapter six, seven, eight, and on. It seems that they serve as a transition, and they do a little bit of both. The therefore of verse twelve that obviously points back. Uh, that's to show more benefits of being justified in Christ. Paul shows that the only way to escape the effects of the fall. Uh, of the human race into sin is through that free gift of God's grace that offers justification to all who will receive it. Now, practically, this, this gives us greater assurance and hope. If we are in Christ, we are saved not by our good deeds, but by what Christ did for us on the cross. So these verses, they reinforce, they cement what we've already seen, what has come before. But they also point to what lies ahead. In chapter 6, Paul moves from salvation to sanctification, and crucial to living a life of holiness and freedom from sin uh, to a greater and greater degree is understanding our new identity in Christ. So when Peter contrasts our old identity in Adam to our new identity in Christ, he looks ahead by laying a foundation for our sanctification. Now also the themes of grace, sin, and death as reigning powers, they're going to appear again frequently in chapters 6, 7, and 8. Now identification, either with Adam or with Christ, this is the key to understanding our passage this morning. Paul is saying that you are either condemned because you are in Adam or you're justified because you're in Jesus. And he's showing that God's gracious gift of righteousness in Christ is far greater than the devastation of sin that resulted from Adam's disobedience. Twice in verses 15 and 17 he says, much more. He wants to encourage believers in Christ with the certainty of their glorious future in him. 
Now to sum up, if you were in if you were in Adam, you were under the reign of death. But if you are in Christ, you will you will reign in life because Christ's gift is greater than Adam's sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, we bow the knee this morning, understanding our need for your Holy Spirit to breathe truth into our hearts from this passage. It is a contested passage. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to see the things that really matter here for us this morning, that we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. That is our only two choices. So, Father, open our eyes, help us to see, help us to hear, help us to understand the truth this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he puts it like this. He says, The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened because of Adam and what has happened and will yet happen because of Jesus Christ. So you just have the two players, Adam and Jesus. Well, first, Paul explains what happened to the human race through Adam. Uh, this is verses 12 through 14. So number one, if you were in Adam, you were under the reign of death. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That's a mouthful. <laughs> so A, sin and death entered the world through Adam, and in Adam we all have sinned. Now, in passing, I need you to see that, that Paul believed in the, uh, the historicity of Adam and the story of the fall there in the first three chapters of Genesis. Adam was not some mythical figure invented by the author of Genesis simply to explain how sin entered into the human race. Rather, God created Adam and Eve as the first humans. He placed them in the Garden of Eden. He gave them a strict, a particular commandment uh, to not eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, they disobeyed God, resulting in God banishing them from the garden and imposing curses on the human race as a result of their sin. Also note that although Eve was, scripture, according to Scripture, the first to sin, God held Adam accountable for plunging the human race into sin. Well, why? Well, it's because God appointed the man as head of the wife in the garden before the fall. The main idea of headship is responsibility or accountability. And here we see that Adam was held responsible. Paul says in, says in verse 12a, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. The one man is obviously Adam. Paul is referring to that original sin when Adam disobeyed God's explicit, explicit command and he ate the forbidden fruit. God had warned Adam and Eve that in the day that he ate of the fruit, he would die. Now that referred to both physical death and to spiritual death, a separation from God. The moment Adam and Eve ate the fruit, the effects of physical aging and death, they were set into motion. You may remember the patriarchs and just the extraordinarily long lives. How many of y'all like to live to a thousand? 
You know, I'm, I'm a little ambivalent about that. I'm not sure if I'd want to live that long. If you can get health, yeah, that would that'd be great. But when you get to the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5, all right, what do we notice? At the end of every little person was, and he died, and he died, and he died. Not only did people begin to die physically after the original sin, but also the entire creation began to experience death. Uh, but Paul has in mind not only physical death, but spiritual death that came through Adam's fall. In 521, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, Paul contrasts the death that came by sin with eternal life. When Adam sinned, he experienced that, that, that spiritual separation from God that apart from the gift of eternal life would have resulted in eternal separation from God. And the Bible calls that the second death. So both physical and spiritual death entered into this world through Adam's original sin. But the crucial and the most controversial phrase in verse 12 is, what does Paul mean when he says, so death spread to all men because all sinned? Now, there have been four main views, uh, plus a fifth, a more recent one by Thomas Schreiner. He's, he's out of a Southern Seminary. Uh, without explaining those views, I think the best view in light of the context is that Paul is saying, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. In other words, God appointed Adam as that representative head of the human race. His sin involved the entire human race in sin. His sin was imputed or charged to everyone born after him. Because of Adam's sin, each of us was born guilty of sin before we ever committed our first willful sin. You've heard me say this before, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by virtue of our union with Adam. David said, from the womb have I uh, sinned. Uh, he, he understood. Now, the common reaction to this is, that's not fair. But it's always good to be a little cautious. It might even be dangerous when you accuse the almighty sovereign of the universe of unfairness. <laughs> if God determined to treat Adam as the representative head of the human race, guess what? It is certainly his prerogative to do so. He's our creator. Also, we live with this set of, sort of representation every day. We're going to the polls here shortly to determine who is going to represent us. If our political leaders declare war on another country, we go to war and some of our soldiers will die because of the actions of our leaders. Their decision was our decision because they represent us. Now, a further response to the unfairness charge is, do you think that you would have done better than Adam? Do you think that you would have resisted temptation and lived a sinless life if you had been born without the effects and the guilt of Adam's sin? Well, that's not likely. Um, and finally, if it's, not if it's not fair that Adam represented you when he sinned, then neither is it fair that Christ represented you when he died on the cross. You do understand that's the essence of grace Grace is not fair. It's undeserved. 
But since there are other views, how do we know that Paul is really saying when, in, when, when Adam sinned, we all sinned? Well, B, the proof that Adam's sin affected the entire human race is that death is, is universal. Paul begins verse 12 with a comparison, just as. But then he, he breaks off right in mid-sentence, and this is one of the difficulties of this passage, to explain or to prove his comment because all sinned. And we're not going to get to the answer of the first part of this until we get to verse 18, but we, we'll get there, Lord willing. The flow of thought here is not really easy to follow, but Paul seems to be arguing that the fact of universal death from the time of Adam until Moses was not due to their individual sins, which, according to him, were not imputed. Okay, where there is no law, there is no sin. They were not breaking, they were not breaking the specific commands of the law, but they were identified with Adam in his original sin. But what does Paul mean when he adds in verse 14, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam? Again, there's much debate. But it seems that Paul means that after the law was given, you remember there in Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, sinners violated the specific commands of God, even as Adam and Eve had done. But those who lived between Adam and Moses, they still sinned even though their guilt was not imputed to them because they didn't violate specific commands. So if their guilt was not imputed, why did they all die? Answer, they died because Adam's sin was imputed to them. They sinned when he sinned. Their proof of their sinning, the proof of their sinning is at, in Adam is that they all died. Now, why does Paul add at this point uh, a, a type uh, that Adam is a type of the one who was to come, namely of Christ? Well, answer, Paul wants us to see a parallel here. Adam's descendants were all implicated in his sin and they died, even though they didn't violate specific commands as he did. But they were in Adam, and when they sinned, he sinned. Or when he sinned, they sinned. In like manner, all of Christ's descendants, born spiritually through the new birth, they are identified with Him, with Christ. They are counted as righteous, not because of their individual deeds of righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. Now, John Piper explains and, and applies this. Here's what he says. That is the all-important parallel. The deepest reason why death reigns over all is not because of our individual sins, but because of Adam's sin imputed to us. So, the deepest reason eternal life reigns is not because of our individual deeds of righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us by grace through faith. He continues, Oh, how much light this sheds on why, pa on why Paul embarked on this paragraph at all. He did it for the sake of our faith and our assurance and our joy he did it to underline the fact that our right standing with God, our freedom from condemnation is not based on our righteous acts, but on Christ's righteous acts, end quote. One other thought before we look at the rest of the text. Outside of Christ, the human race is still under the reign of death. As George Bernard Shaw wryly observed, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. You got that, did you? 
We try to, 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 to just put it out of our minds, but then it hits somebody close to us, and we, we realize, I'm going to die someday too. We try to preserve our bodies through exercise, healthy food, stuff like that. Social media perpetuates the myth by showing us old geezers who compete in triathlons. Well, that's okay. The fact is, those old geezers are going to die one day too. Plastic surgery, that may allow us to leave a younger-looking corpse, but the bottom line is, we're still a corpse. Contrary to popular thought, Death is not a natural part of the life cycle. Death is God's penalty for Adam's sin imposed on all his posterity. Death reigns if you are still in Adam. So the question comes, how do we escape the curse? Well, that's number two. If you are in Christ, you will reign in life because Christ's gift is greater than Adam's sin. This is verses 15 through 17. Now, these are also difficult verses, and I'm going to skin them. Paul is making a comparison between Adam and Christ, but even more a contrast. He's showing why Christ is superior to Adam, as seen by his twice-repeated phrase, much more. Now, Adam's sin resulted in condemnation and death to the human race. But Christ's obedience unto death resulted in justification and life to those who receive it. I'm going to briefly look at each verse. So, A, the work of Christ is greater than Adam's sin because it displays and dispenses the abundance of God's grace. Romans uh, 5.15 says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Paul contrasts the devastating effects of Adam's transgression. The many died, he says. And he contrasts it with the glorious effects of God's free gift and grace, which abounds to the many. Now, many is not viewing the affected groups numerically or quantitative, quantitatively, but qualitatively. It has two different ranges here. In the first instance, it refers to the devastating effects of one man's sin on many, which means the entire human race. It's like one little campfire left unintended, which starts a forest fire that destroys the entire forest. One man sinned, but many died. In the second instance, it cannot refer to the whole of the human race. It only refers to those who have received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, according to verse 17. It would be wrong to interpret the second many to mean that salvation is given to all because in verse 16, the second group is actually justified. They are right with God. Rather, it refers to the many who actually receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, the much more in that verse, that refers to just the superlative nature of salvation over judgment. Paul piles up words like grace, gift, and abound to emphasize how wonderful God's gift of salvation is provided freely for us at Christ's expense. 
It's an undeserved gift. And it abounds to us through the grace of God and through the grace of Christ who are linked in this verse. I don't know of another passage in the New Testament where that is done. It talks about the grace of God and the grace of Christ in the same verse. How much sin have you piled up? God's grace in Christ is more abundant. How great is your guilt and debt of sin? God's free gift, free gift and abounding grace is greater. Praise God. Well, B, the work of Christ is greater than Adam's sin because it overcomes many sins to freely bestow justification. Romans 5.16 says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The main contrast here is that one sin resulted in condemnation of the entire human race. But the many sins of that fallen race now result in justification for all who believe. Now, the word believe is not here, but it is implicit. If you'll remember from 324 all the way through chapter 5, verse 1, Paul hammered home the idea that justification is received by faith alone. Condemnation and justification, they are judicial terms. Christ's work is greater than Adam's sin because it overcame the great devastation that resulted from Adam's sin. Adam lit the forest fire that absolutely devastated the entire human race. But Christ not only put it out, he planted a new forest, an eternal one, for all who will receive his gracious gift. We'll see the work of Christ is greater than Adam's sin because rather than bringing the reign of death, it actually causes those who receive it to reign in life. Romans 5.17, For if, because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of, the, of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, he says it there. It's either Adam or Christ. There's your only two choices. How do we escape this awful reign of death? Paul says it's by receiving the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Again, Paul here refers to the abundance of grace to let us know that there's not any chance that God's supply of grace is going to run dry on the sinner who's in line before you. Could you imagine that? You're at the gates of heaven and uh, they're, they're looking at, at, at whatever. And uh, the, the meter for God's grace gets low and everybody starts worrying. And, and, and the person right in front of you used, gets the last of God's grace. That, that would be pretty horrifying, wouldn't it? Sorry, no more grace. But Paul keeps using the word abundance to assure us that is not going to happen. Happen. Now, the gift that we receive is righteousness, and it's Christ's righteousness credited to your account. That's the meaning of justification. God doesn't just forgive your sin. That's taking care of the negative. Sin is negative, right? That's below the line. Okay, we have sinned. He doesn't just take care of that. He also bestows the positive righteousness of Christ to you. <laughs> so now you stand before God, not in your own righteous deeds, but in the righteousness of your representative, Jesus Christ. 
one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for, for he, God, um, okay, it's just slipped me. I hate when God does that. And he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinless, to be sin on our behalf. That's taking care of the negative. That, I have to say it fast to see it just if I mess it up. He, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of, Christ, of God in Christ. It's called the great exchange. We give our sin in return. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. Whew. I'm a deal hunter. Many of you know that. I love finding a good deal. Trust me, there is no better deal in the entire universe than that. If you have not taken advantage of that, you need to. You have to. Well, not only do you escape the reign of death, you also will reign in life through Jesus Christ. And then this begins now as you begin to have victory over sin in your life. It also means that the sting and the fear of death, that they're removed. So as Paul will say later, we are actually more than conquerors through Christ. And then Paul sums up verses 12 through 17. Number three says, or, or yeah, number three, through Adam's sin, all were condemned as sinners, but through Christ's righteousness, all in him are justified. This is verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now verse 18, as I said earlier, it completes the idea that Paul began way back in verse 12. One man's sin brought death and condemnation, to all, but one man's righteousness brought justification of life to all. Now, Paul is not teaching universalism here, uh, that all people are eventually going to be saved. That would contradict what he teaches in quite a few other places, that sinners will face judgment and eternal condemnation. Also, in verse 17, he just stated that those, it's those who receive the gift of righteousness who are going to reign with Christ. Rather, the two alls, they relate to their representative heads. All who are in Adam are condemned. All who are in Christ are justified. And again, that's your only two choices. The same limits apply to the many in verse 19. It says, through one man's disobedience, the many, or the entire race, were made sinners. Through one man's obedience at the cross, the many, or believers, will be made righteous. Now, the word made, it means to appoint. But it has to be interpreted here in a forensic context. To be righteous does not mean to be morally upright, but to be acquitted to be cleared of all charges, to be declared not guilty in that heavenly judgment. So Paul is summing up verses 12 through 17 and 18 and repeating it in a slightly different language in verse 19. Now, the main idea, again, is pretty clear. If you were in Adam, you're under the reign of sin and death. You're headed for eternal condemnation. But if you are in Christ by faith in His sacrifice on the cross, then you are free from sin and death, 
and will reign in life through him because Christ's gift, once again, is greater than Adam's sin. These difficult verses have required a lot of explanation. I want to wrap up by just restating very briefly some of the practical applications. Number one, since the universal problem is of the human race is sin, the universal solution is the gospel. Uh, from primitive tribes to educated professors, the need and the solution are the same. Don't be intimidated, intimidated by someone with a PhD. He's a sinner. He needs a Savior. You can point him to Christ. Well, number two, if the universal problem is guilt by identification with Adam's sin, then salvation cannot be through us adding our works to the salvation. This text is all about how sinners can be put right with God. We must be identified by Christ's righteousness by faith. We must receive God's gift through Christ. Number three, if we are in Christ, our salvation is secure, not because of anything in us, but because we are in Him. You won't be saved by your performance, and trust me, that's good news. <laughs> Rather, by Christ's obedience in the cross and the fact that you're trusting in Him alone. Uh, uh, it's over here. I'm, I'm on... This is uh, James Boyce. He's a pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. Um, this is how he closes out this section. When I read this, I went, okay, that's pretty good. He says, if these truths seem impossible or even crazy to you, if you are objecting, but how could God possibly treat us as if we were in Adam and as... as and as if we were in Christ. How can he save us because of something someone else has done? It is probably because you are not saved. For those who are not saved, these doctrines will always sound foolish. They may even sound like an invitation to sin, which is the objection Paul deals with in the very next chapter of Romans. It will always be thus, for how can those who do not possess the Spirit of God understand spiritual matters? Ah, but to those who are saved, these truths are wonderful. They are the very essence of life, which is, of course, what Paul speaks about here, justification that brings life for all men. If you understand this, and it seems right to you, not pointless, incorrect, or irrational, and if you believe it, you are one of those saved persons. Boy, that's some type of barometer, isn't it? If this just all sounds too strange that God is going to charge somebody else's sin to me, but then he can also charge somebody else's righteousness to me, if that's just crazy, then you haven't experienced it yet. Dr. Boyce would say, you're not saved. But if you are saved and you understand that and, and you believe it, oh, what a flood of life it brings to you to understand that your salvation doesn't come from you and it doesn't depend on you. Depends on God. Well, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your marvelous love. We thank you for the abundance of grace and mercy that we have because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. 
We ask that you would take that this morning, that truth, and pierce our hearts. If there's anybody in here that doesn't know you through your son Jesus, I pray that you would, uh, Father, do that work in their hearts to, to the point that they would see Jesus for who he really is. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So, Father, we ask that you do that now uh, for your name's sake and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you don't know Christ this morning, um, I'm just going to invite you, okay, to take a step. It's always a step of faith. We, we never see. When I walk down these steps, thank goodness I can see, right? There's faith even in that, is there not? How many times have I come down these steps? A few thousand? And they've held me up every time. A hundred years from now, I might take a step and go right through. But right now, we have faith that you're sitting in pews, you're exhibiting faith, right? You assume they're going to hold you up. What are you counting on for your eternal life? Maybe you've heard truth in here before, and you say, yeah, I've got time to deal with that. I, I hope that's true. But I'm telling you, that is, that, is, that is mere foolishness to think that God owes you anything. Paul says, today is the day of salvation. I encourage you, if you're hearing anything in your heart that says, listen up, don't run from that, run to it, okay? I think that's why David was a man after God's own heart. When he was confronted with sin, he didn't run from God like Adam and Eve did. What did they do? They hid, right? Got some fig leaves. God can't see us naked. All right? Um, don't run from God. Run to Him. He'll save you today. He'll change your heart. He'll change your life. I encourage you to do it. If you're a believer... I hope that you walk a little bit more confidently in your faith, understanding that, yes, we are called to holiness. Be holy because God is holy. Peter tells that. He's simply repeating what God told the Israelites back in the wilderness. Yes, we are to be holy. We are to be, live, live lives that are fruitful and bear fruit and what have you. But ultimately, your salvation is secure. Because you are either in Adam and lost totally, or you are in Christ and saved fully and forever. Man, what a freeing thought that is. As you're walking about this week and you do something, we'll just call it dumb. <laughs> you, you've sinned and you know you've sinned. Go to God. He has provision for that. All right, First John 1, 9. Um, I encourage you this week, realize you, you can be happy in Christ. You can have joy in your life regardless of what's going on, on outside of you or around you or got you in the middle of its claws. Life does that to us. Guess what? It doesn't affect what's going to happen in eternity. And if you know Christ, as Jesus would say, you're on solid ground. You're not going to be shaken. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.